we're going to continue our study on the minor prophets. This week, we're going to study the prophet Nahum. And once again, we're going to turn to our friends at the Bible Project and watch a short three-minute video that's going to give you a really cool animated background on the history that goes behind the book we're about to study. So check this out. The Book of the Prophet Nahum. This short prophetic book is a collection of poems announcing the downfall of one of Israel's worst oppressors, the ancient empire of Assyria and its capital city, Nineveh. The Assyrians arose as one of the world's first great empires and their expansion into Israel resulted in the total destruction and exile of the northern kingdom and its tribes. The Assyrian armies were violent and destructive on a scale that the world had never seen before. And so Israel and its neighbors were awaiting the downfall of Assyria, which eventually came in the year 612 BC. The Babylonians rose up and began a rebellion that overtook Nineveh and brought down the Assyrian Empire. And so chapter 2 depicts the fall of Nineveh in vivid poetry and chapter 3 then explores the downfall of the empire as a whole. But this book isn't just an angry tirade against Israel's enemies. The introductory chapter shows us that there is way, way more going on here. The book opens with an incomplete alphabet poem that begins by describing a powerful appearance of God's glory. It's very similar to how the previous book, Micah, began and how the next book, Habakkuk, is going to conclude. And it's God, the all-powerful creator, coming to confront the nations and bring his justice on their evil. And the poem opens by quoting from the famous line of God's self-description after the golden calf incident in the book of Exodus chapter 34. The Lord is slow to anger. He's great in power. He won't leave evil unpunished. And so the rest of the poem goes back and forth, contrasting the fate of the arrogant, violent nations with the fate of God's faithful remnant. When God brings down all the arrogant empires, he will provide refuge for those who humble themselves before him. Now, here's what's really interesting, is that you thought this book was only about Assyria, but Nahum actually nowhere mentions Nineveh or Assyria in chapter 1. And when he describes the downfall of the bad guys, he uses Isaiah's language about the fall of Babylon, which happened much later in history. And not only that, Nahum also describes the downfall of the bad guys as good news for the remnant of God's people. It's a direct allusion to Isaiah's good news about the downfall of Babylon. And so all these little details from chapter 1, they come together to make a key point. For Nahum, the fall of Nineveh is being presented as an example, as an image of how God is at work in history in every age, how he won't allow the arrogant or violent empires of our world to endure forever. And so the message of Nahum is actually very similar to that of Daniel. Assyria stands in a long line of violent empires throughout history. And Nineveh's fate is a memorial to God's commitment to bring down the violent and the arrogant in every age. Today we're going to tackle just a few questions. We're going to answer the questions, what do we know about the man Nahum? The answer, not a whole lot. Um, what is the basic message of the book of Nahum? What is different about Nahum's message to Nineveh compared to Jonah's message to Nineveh, which came 150 years earlier? And how are Nahum's predictions about the future of Nineveh both good news and bad news? And then we'll make a couple of quick applications. Uh, first, what do we know about the man Nahum? We know he wrote a book of the Old Testament that we have today. 
Nahum was a man who lived in the northern kingdom, and he was born under Assyrian occupation of Israel. That's a whole lot of historical mumbo-jumbo that I know some of you love and I love, and some of you can't get into that part of it. Here's what you need to know. After King Solomon, if we go back a few hundred years before Nahum, after King Solomon, Israel was never a united country again. After King Solomon, there was a civil war that broke out, and Israel split and became two separate sovereign nations. You had the northern kingdom that retained the name of Israel, and you had 10 of the 12 tribes that made that kingdom. And then you had the southern kingdom, which was the tribes of Benjamin and Judah, and they took the name of the larger of the two tribes, Judah. So after King Solomon, God's people who were united became divided. So now he had two people. He had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. At one point, out of the northern kingdom, God raised up a prophet to go to a neighboring nation that was growing into an empire. He raised up the prophet Jonah from the north, and he sent Jonah to the main city of the Assyrian Empire, the city of Nineveh, and Noah brought with him a message, you better repent and change or God's going to destroy you. He said, there's still time for mercy. And at that time, the Assyrians listened, they repented, they fasted, God did not destroy them, and it actually led to a period of peace between the Assyrians and the northern kingdom. However, the story continues that not that long thereafter, the Assyrians returned to their old ways. They returned to being the greedy, barbaric, tortuous empire who got rich and decided to expand their empire. So they started attacking the northern kingdom. Their first attack, unsuccessful. Their second attack, they defeated one of the ten northern tribes, Naphtali, and they took one tribe. Their next attack, they returned and they carried off 10 of the remaining 11 tribes. Everybody but Judah. And so, 150 years after Jonah goes to Nineveh, the Assyrian Empire had grown and they had conquered 11 twelfths of Israel. They had also expanded into Egypt in the northern part of Egypt and conquered there. They were a growing empire. They were expanding and they were occupying this territory and oppressing and torturing and ruling the people who lived there. Nahum was born as a Jew living under Assyrian rule in the northern kingdom. And God raises up Nahum and he gives Nahum a message to carry from the northern kingdom geographically he says i'm going to send you to nineveh and you're going to deliver a message that i'm going to give you that's all we know about nahum other than the fact that the bible doesn't tell us this but history does um nahum's tomb is actually on the bank of the tigris river he never returned home he was buried in the land that he went to witness to and that tomb today is is revered by the muslims as a prophet from god So that's the little bit that we know about Nahum. Second question, what is the basic message of the book of Nahum? It's a lot of poetry. I don't know if you read it before today or if you've read it in the past. My hope is that after today, sometime this week, you'll go and you will read it again, hopefully with a better understanding. Here's the basic message. The basic message is there comes a time when God's patience runs out. There comes a time... When God has no more mercy, when there is no more hope, and judgment comes, when God has had enough. 
As a parent, have you ever found yourself saying, I've had enough? And usually that proclamation comes before lots of tears and weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? The message of Nahum is that there is a time when God's had enough. You can actually exhaust his patience, that when you persistently resist his mercy and you abuse his patience, he will act in anger, with vengeance, and with judgment. That's the the basic message. Nineveh had been repeatedly warned and time has run out. That's the basic message. Now, here's what I know. I know. If I would have sent out a survey to this church and I would have asked you, "I I want you to help me know what you'd like me to talk about on Sunday. Give me some topics you'd like to hear about. I'm almost 100% certain that God's wrath and anger would not be in the top 10. I'm pretty sure most of you would say, Pastor, you know what I'd like to learn more about is God's anger. And yet that's almost exclusively what Nahum focuses on in the message God gives him to carry to Nineveh. And this is a very unpopular message to carry in 2019 to a group of people. We don't really crave or want to hear about an angry God. We don't like that. There is an opposite extreme, though, that you can take. There is, and maybe you take this position, there is this position that says this. God is so loving and he's so kind that he would never wipe out an entire nation. He'd never wipe out a city. God would never wipe out a person's wealth or remove their job or inflict their family with disaster. God would never get that angry. He is loving, he is patient, he is forgiving, and that's completely untrue. God has wiped out entire nations. He has and he does. In fact, that's why when you would go to look for Nineveh today, you wouldn't find it. In fact, it took someone until 1820 to find it buried under rubble. And the prophecy of Zephaniah came true that in just a few years, Nineveh would be a place where all their cedar would rot out and wild animals would come and make their homes in their palaces. God reminds us once again that he himself can insert himself into history. And just like the apostle Paul said when he was debating with people on Mars Hill, it is God who allots every nation their time and space and boundaries in the pages of history. God reserves the right to insert himself into history whenever he wants, and he can do whatever he wants. God is powerful. And that is the message, the basic, the unpopular message of Nahum. The message to each of us should be this. Don't exhaust God's patience in your life and don't resist his mercy because once it's gone, it's too late for change. So now that you're all happy and excited about that, let's move on to the next question. What is different about Nahum's message to Nineveh compared to Jonah's message to Nineveh 150 years earlier. If you were listening, and I hope that you were, earlier today I said there's two characteristics of God that we focused on in our prayer time. And there's two characteristics of God that if you read through the prophets, you'll always see these two come out. God's justice and God's mercy. God is a God of justice, which means he cannot, and you read it in verse 3, God is slow to anger, but don't mistake his slowness to anger for God not ever getting angry. God gets angry. In fact, let me, I don't have time to develop this, so I'll just go for the jugular. Because God is so consistent, he's also very predictable. Don't let that bother you. 
That doesn't mean that God can't surprise us. But when I tell you God's character has not changed ever, if you learn God's character and you study the prophets and you get to know him better, you can learn very consistently God gets angry over certain things very consistently. What angered God 3,500 years ago angers God today. What didn't anger God 3,500 years ago doesn't anger God today. If you study his character, you can predict how he's going to respond. It should not catch us by surprise. God is a God of justice, which Nahum reminds us, God will not let evil go unpunished. But God is also a God of mercy, which means God loves to pardon our sin. And what we learn is that God's anger builds slowly over time. And there is a time for God to be merciful. But once his mercy is persistently refused, God must judge and punish. Jonah was the first person that was sent to Nineveh. But Jonah just had the timing wrong. Jonah wanted Nahum's message. Jonah was a Jew who didn't like the Ninevites. And you can go back and listen to Pastor James's message on this. This was explained very clearly. But the reality was Jonah wanted to be the one to go deliver the message of judgment to Nineveh. Your time is up. You're finished. And when God said, that's not the message I want you to deliver. I want you to deliver a message of mercy. Jonah didn't want to do that. But God eventually broke through to Jonah. And Jonah went to Nineveh and said, God is angry, but there's still time. The anger hasn't boiled over yet. It is simmering but it hasn't boiled over. There's time, and if you repent, God will relent. And they listened. But 150 years later, the difference between Nahum's message and Jonah's message is that now there's no more time. There's no more mercy. They have once again resisted and refused what God was trying to correct in their lives. And so Nahum is coming to saying, your time is up. You're finished. You're done. And his message is actually broken down beautifully in the structure of Nahum when you read it again. Chapter 1 is a proclamation. Nahum comes and says, here's what God is going to do. Okay, Your time is up. God is slow to anger, but now he's angry. And once his anger is aroused, you cannot avoid it. It's time for God's vengeance to take place. God is inserting himself into history. He's allowing a movement where the mighty Assyrian empire will be toppled. Chapter 2, he goes beyond just proclaiming that it's going to happen. Nahum actually predicts with startling detail exactly how they're going to be toppled. Now, I'm dating myself a little bit, but I remember watching on television when the first bombs were dropped over Baghdad. Because of technology, you literally these days, can actually watch war begin, can't you? You can see. You can go back on YouTube and watch an archive. You can literally see the first gunshots happen. You can see the reporters and hear them describing what's going on in vivid detail. There's helmet cam. There's all kinds of technology now that brings us into the forefront of this type of battle and war. God showed Nahum a vision so specific that he was able to predict to the Assyrians, the color of the uniforms of the invading empire that would take them over. Uniforms that no one wore at the time Nahum was predicting it, but at the time that it actually happened was specifically accurate. 
He describes it in vivid detail in chapter 2. Read it. It reads like a reporter describing the sights, the sounds, the smells, the appearances. He talks about the futility with which Nineveh will try and defend itself. He actually even describes the specific entrance into their city that the invading marauders will take. He tells them the specific gate and route that they'll go through. And it all played out with accuracy when the Ninevites and the Assyrians were toppled. Then in chapter 3, after he's told them that God's going to do it and how he's going to do it, Nahum's message is, here's why God's going to do it, and he singles out two things. You might be thinking, like I was when I was reading it, why is God so mad at the Assyrians? He didn't form a covenant with them. He didn't give them the Ten Commandments. He didn't give them a temple. Certainly, he could not be holding them to the same standard that they were completely ignorant of. They didn't have a presentation of the commandments. Then, no, they weren't looking for a Messiah. What is God's indictment against these who would seem to be outside of this uh, level of being informed? And what's interesting is that God doesn't indict them on what they don't know. He indicts them on what they do know that they violated. Two things, cruel inhumanity and financial corruption. He says, in a sense, I have to wipe you out because you know in your conscience that torturing people is wrong. You know in your conscience that being barbaric is wrong, that slaughtering innocent babies is wrong, that taking land that does not belong. God says every human being in their conscience should know that taking what doesn't belong to you by force is wrong. That God has ways of giving to you what he wants to give you without you having to take it for someone else against their will and by force. He also says financial corruption. As they grew, they got money. And as they got money, they got corrupt. And he singles out bribery. In other words, the people who had more money had more advantages. Not just that they could live in a better house or a better place. God doesn't indict them for that. He says you're using money to bribe your justice system. And if you have money, it sounds familiar. We heard this in other places in the prophets. He says you're using your money as leverage to get advantages. And he says it's unfair to the poor. In God's world, justice should be available to everybody regardless of if you can pay for it or not. And he says, because of those two things that I've warned you about and warned you about and warned you about and you've ignored me, ignored me, ignored me, this is why I have to wipe you out. And the very last verse of Nahum says, and there is no, there is no uh, cure for your wound. There's no hope. So the biggest difference between Nahum and Jonah is that both of them said God is slow to get angry and that he's getting angry, but in Nahum he says there's no hope. You're finished. It's over. So how are Nahum's predictions about the future of Nineveh both good news and bad news? You know, whenever God inserts himself into history, here's what it means. It means disaster for God's enemies and deliverance for his friends first chapter. You heard about it in the video. It's good news and bad news. Nahum alternates between saying, here's the bad news for Nineveh. Here's the good news for Israel. Here's the bad news for God's enemy. Here's the good news for his friends. And here's the message for all of us. When you live on God's side, you don't have to be afraid when it comes to judge things. You don't have to be terrified of judgment day when you live right. 
When you're prepared for God to show up and look into your heart and your life, if you have nothing to hide, if you're living right with Him, if your account is clean, there's nothing to be afraid. And when God shows up on the day of wrath, it's deliverance because it's the day when God makes good in His promise that everything that's ever been done wrong to you, I'm going to come and make right someday. And so it is bad news for the Ninevites. But it's good news for his people who have lived under occupancy. And there was a remnant of Israel who never turned their back on God, who loved God, who prayed and waited for God to come and restore them again, to to evict the Assyrians. And it actually says in Nahum, you get this awesome verse, how beautiful are the feet who bring good news. You hear it quoted again in the New Testament. You have to understand in Bible times, feet were gross. They were dirty. Feet were never considered beautiful. The only kind of beautiful feet were the ones who carried good news to you that were like a drink of cool water on a hot day, you'd want to kiss those feet. And so Nahum's message, in a sense, was bringing bad news to Nineveh. But it was bringing really good news that they were waiting to hear in Israel. So Nahum's prediction of God's destruction of Nineveh was terrible news for the Assyrians because their fate was fixed. There was no hope. It was too late. However, it was good news to God's friends who were living as refugees in their own homeland. God promised that he would return. He would avenge his people and his land. Nineveh was finished. He had not forgotten his promise. This is important for us to see because in today's day and age, if you talk to people who who don't accept a sovereign God, here's what they say. They say God can't intervene in nature and he can't intervene in history. They believe uh, nature is a closed system and that history is largely the outcome of economic forces. And what we see is that the prophets remind us that God can intervene in nature anytime he wants. It's his. We call those things miracles when God intervenes in nature. And we also see that God throughout history has, (laughs) nations have risen and fallen. And we think it's because of economic forces. But if you study the Bible, it's because God inserts himself into history when he needs to, when he must. And nations rise and fall based on what God says, not based on what we want. And the prophets remind us of that over and over and over again. And if you have your eyes open, you can see when God's anger is simmering. It's simmering over our nation right now, if you know how to look. It's simmering. It's simmering. So let me give you um, two final application points. Um, and, And I've been asked this question a lot. Why do we study the prophets? These guys are not our people. They are not writing to our government. They're not writing to us personally. They're writing in a different day and time. Why do we study them? And the answer is simple. We study the prophets to learn who God is because they show God to us and they show Jesus to us. So the simple reason we study them is to know God better. And with that in mind, let me try and expand your thinking of God in two ways. Point number one. This is in your notes. Here's one thing I see Nahum telling us about God. God is incredibly patient. While his anger simmers, he can still relent. However, once his anger boils over, his patience runs out, and we can no longer turn away from his wrath. Simply put, there comes a time when God has had enough. So the blanks are patient, boils over, and enough. Here's what Nahum says, chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. The Lord is a jealous God. I'm going to come back to that in a second because I know some of us have problems with that. Let me show you why you shouldn't have a problem with that in a minute. The Lord is a jealous God filled with vengeance and rage. He takes revenge on all who oppose him and continues to rage against his enemies. The Lord is slow to get angry, but his power is great and he never lets the guilty go unpunished. So we hold two things in tension right here. The pace at which God gets angry and his desire to be merciful with the reality that he never lets the guilty go unpunished. 
Then let's skip to the very end of the book, chapter 3, verse 19. Here's what he's saying to the Ninevites. The last thing he says, there is no healing for your wound. Your injury is fatal. All who hear of your destruction will clap your hands for joy. Where can anyone be found who has not suffered from your continual cruelty? How would you like to be the person who when you get your comeuppance, other people celebrate because you've been so mean and cruel to so many people? I hope that's not your story. I hope there's not people who secretly rejoice when you get what's coming to you because your cruelty and your ignorance and your meanness and your unkindness has spread so far and wide. I hope that's nobody in here. But that statement rings true about how God responds to these kinds of things. God's anger, let me give you a quick illustration. It's the best one I could come up with. Um, My parents taught me to cook like when I was seven, which I realize is probably a federal offense nowadays, you know, or just throw it in the microwave. But this was pre-microwave. Pretty much everything we cooked, we thought was pretty high-tech because we would use something called a stove and a pot or a kettle. One of the first things my mom taught me to do was to make just plain pasta noodles. And uh, I didn't really enjoy it because it took a while. The longest, most boring part of the process was boiling water. Do you remember when you learned about boiling water? Pretty simple for us. Mom showed us, you take tap water, you put it in the pot, you put it on the stove, you turn it on high, put some salt in it. And then from here, the instructions differ from family to family. But I did at some point tire of watching the water heat up. It's boring. In fact, my mom told me that if I watch it, it actually slows the process down. (laughs) Foolish wives tale, I guess. But I also remember if I didn't pay attention to it at all, I would hear the sound from the other room of water that had boiled over, cascading over the pot, onto the stove, sizzling, and then onto the floor. And then I also learned dumb ways to clean up boiling water. But here's what I learned. What you had. The goal was to get the water to boil without boiling over, right? I learned there's all kinds of tricks to do that. That's not the point of the illustration. But we didn't want that water to boil over. Because once it boiled over, it was too late. It was boiled over, and you couldn't get that boiling water back in the kettle again. But if you kept your eye on that pot, you could tell when it was simmering. And as long as it was simmering, you could still make adjustments before that it boiled over to keep it from boiling over. But once it boiled over, it was too late. God's anger is like water simmering in a pot. And if you're tuned in and you're watching, you you should be able to tell when it's simmering. And the merciful part of God says that you should be able to see when it's simmering. And he has built into his character a willingness to be flexible and allow your response to him to be factored into the way that he relates to you. The message of the prophets is God's anger is simmering, it's simmering, it's simmering, and it's on its route to boiling over. And if there's no change, it's going to boil over, and this is the plan. However, you have some influence, and if you will repent, I will back off. I will forgive you. I want you to be aware of when God's anger is simmering over a nation, over a workplace, over your life. You can live in ignorance and go in the other room and wait until it boils over because you don't want to deal with that part of who God is. But the reality is God's anger is just like water 
boiling inside of a pot. Jonah came to them and said, it's simmering and it's getting close to boiling over, but there's still time for you to make some adjustments, to pull it off the heat, to bring it back down. Nahum came and said, it's boiling over and it's too late. If I were you, I would want to be dialed into those areas of my life that anger God. Because once you know his character, you can predict him. You know what he's going to get angry about. You know how he's going to respond to repentance. That's why the prophets were able to be so predictable with accuracy because they knew God's nature. They knew certain things were good. Even if they didn't get punished right away, some of you would like God to speed up the way he punishes other people. But don't mistake God's slowness to anger for his refusal to get angry. And I realize this is kind of a controversial thing in many ways because I've heard it said so many times, you know, I don't, I don't want to, this is frozen. Technology is great when it works. I've heard people say, you know, I don't want to believe in a God who gets angry. Or I don't like to think about God's anger or even more so, I don't think God ever gets angry angry. Let me show you why you probably don't want a God who doesn't get angry. Because for you, God's very clear about what angers him. You know what angers him? Evil. When someone does you dirty, that makes God angry. When someone treats you unjustly, God notices and it angers him. Sin angers God cruelness angers God, unkindness angers God, suing division makes God angry. When people treat God, or when people treat other people with hate, with anger, it angers God. Sin and evil have always made God angry and keep making God angry. For you to say, I want a God that doesn't get angry, here's the God you get. You get a God who watches you be mistreated and feels nothing. You watch a God, you get a God who can watch you be lied about, mistreated, forgotten about, racially discriminated against, economically held back. You get a God who looks at that and is completely numb and indifferent. Is that the God you want? The God who can watch the rapist rape and feel nothing who can watch the pedophile abuse children and have no emotional response. Because if you want a God who doesn't get angry, that's the God you get. I want the God who is a holy God, who looks upon anger or who looks upon injustice and evil and feels something and wants to make wrongs right, who wants to act. That's the God that we have. We also have a God who doesn't have a hair trigger, who is slow to anger. It simmers before it boils over. Because that same God who sees that injustice wants to do two things intention. He wants to judge and discipline and act on and punish the evil, and he wants to rush in to pardon it. We also read that God is a jealous God, and some of you read that and say, I don't like that. I don't want to think of God being a jealous God. Perhaps you misunderstand the difference between jealousy and envy, okay? God is not envious. He doesn't envy anybody at all. Why? God has everything. It's all his. Psalm 50 starts off by by, 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 by David writing that God says, if I'm hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Why would he tell you anyway? It's all his. 
He says, the cattle on the hill of a thousand hills are mine. In other words, God says, if I'm hungry, I'll just go help myself to, to what is mine. I have it anyway. I wouldn't tell you about it. Everything is God's. God doesn't have to envy anybody. The difference between jealousy and envy is this. Envy is to strongly desire something that isn't yours that someone else has that you want to take from them. That's envy. Jealousy is to strongly desire to keep what belongs to you that someone else wants to take away from you. That's to be jealous. So it's completely sinful for a man to be envious for his friend's wife. But it's completely understandable and healthy for him to be jealous for his wife's affection and not want his wife's affection to be stolen from him and given to another. God is a jealous God, not an envious God. God is jealous for his name. God is jealous for his world. God is jealous for his people. He wants them to be his and he doesn't want them to be taken from his. He wants you to belong to him and only him. That's why he's jealous for you. And what God is saying through Nahum and the prophets is this. This is my world. These are my people. This is my name and I won't have people acting like this in my world. And that's why a jealous God is led to vengeance because he's defending his world. He's defending his people. And when anybody or anything comes in to jeopardize God's people, God's world, it stirs up his anger. He's a patient God. But once it boils over, and once you resist it, it's too late. Final application point. God is both a God of justice. I've said this three or four times already. God's both a God of justice, punishment, and a God of mercy, pardon. What does Nahum show us about Jesus? Here's your answer. Only at the cross is God able to satisfy both in Jesus. The punishment fell on Jesus and the pardon fell on us. Chapter 2, verse 2. Even though the destroyer has destroyed Judah, the Lord will restore its honor. Israel's vine has been stripped of branches, but he will restore its splendor. The reason you read through the prophets is to know God better, and the prophets beautifully balance two elements of God's character, his justice and his mercy. His justice, again, means God must punish evil. He cannot leave evil go unpunished. His mercy means God loves to pardon it. And there's some of us that only like to talk about the justice of God, and if you do that, you get, a, you get too hard of a view of God. God is always ready to punish, 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 punish. We should live in absolute terror. The other side is a lot of us love to only go to his mercy, and then we get too soft of a view of God. He's a pushover. He's a doormat. He sweeps everything under the rug. And if you only have one view, your relationship with God is all fear and no love, and the other view is all love and no fear, and you need a balance of both. In fact, isn't it interesting that God raises up a prophet in Hosea and a prophet in Amos, one of whom is all about God's justice, and the other one is all about God's mercy, and he sent mercy. He sends both of them at the same time to the same city with two different messages to balance out the justice and the mercy of God. And in Nahum, you might be left with this question, what is the remedy for this problem? Because here you have the Assyrian people who at this time in history, God has to punish them and he has to wipe them out. He has to satisfy their justice and there's no more hope. How is my life any better? How, do, how can I read this story and not be as terrified as the Assyrians? What if God's saying to me, my time has run out? All, the only option for me is his justice. And the answer, the only answer history has ever provided for us is the perfect one. The answer is Jesus Christ because at the cross, God's justice and his mercy come together. Because at the cross in Jesus, God absolutely executes ultimate justice. At the cross, 
every single sin, past, present, and future, is punished. And that punishment falls on Jesus. And as a result, God's mercy is now available to all of us who are guilty. The punishment fell on the innocent so that the pardon is available for the guilty. Even though there's all this horror going on, it points us to, man, there's got to be a better way than this. There's got to be a better way than people just messing up and getting wiped out and people getting messed up and wiped out. There is an option. That option came at great cost to Jesus. He died on the cross so that you don't have to be stuck persistently waiting in terror for judgment to fall. But here's my question. Will today be your day of repentance from resisting God's leadership in your life? Friend, I I don't have any time to tell you, but just trust me when I say, I have watched God's judgment fall on people that I know and friends that I've had in my life. I've watched God be patient and patient and patient with people who wouldn't forgive grudges, who wouldn't stop being so stingy, who wouldn't recognize their materialism and pride, and God would be patient and patient and patient. They would sit in church for years and hear sermons and go in one ear and out the other. They'd have friends try and call them on it, and they would resist and resist, and I've watched God wipe out wealth. I've watched God wipe out jobs. I've watched God with just hold his hand back and let families fall into deep dysfunction, not because you get any joy. It's just like it's predictable. If you resist and you resist and you resist and you resist, sometimes even while you're resisting, your life might be going in this direction and you think God's okay with it. But friends, there comes a time when it runs out. There comes a time when it runs out. And it boils down to you resisting the leadership God's trying to take in your life. He's trying to lead you in a direction that you're saying no to. He's trying to get you to start something you won't start, to stop something you won't stop, to increase something you want to decrease, to decrease something you want to increase. It goes into all those different areas. To say you're sorry, to accept forgiveness, to stop being so petty. There's all these different things. I'm just telling you, be thankful that God is patient. But don't take it for granted because there comes a point. My question to you is, if you really want to experience that mercy, will today be the day that you will stop resisting God's leadership and surrender to him? And my second question, will you allow God to make you into his vase of mercy or into his bowl of judgment? God's desire for Israel was to make them, you know, the story of the potter in Jeremiah. The potter was trying to make the clay into a vase, but the the clay would not run properly. (laughs) The clay was resisting the fingers of the potter. And so he had to push it all back together and make it into a crude pot. And God asked Jeremiah, do you, one of the other prophets, do you get the message here? And the message is that, you know, some people think, well, it's all about the potter. The potter has it fixed in his mind. You're going to be A or B. And what this shows us is that we have, God allows some level of influence and flexibility in our lives. He has plans for all of us, but what if we don't cooperate? What he was saying to Israel is, I wanted to make you into a vase of my mercy, but you didn't want that. So I had to make you into a bowl of my judgment. What type of clay are you? Are you the clay that says, God, do with me as you want? Or you say, God, make me into what I want? (laughs) Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you humbly today. And we listen to your message. Not an easy message, but a clear one. And the clear message to us is to get serious as you are about the sin in our life and not take your patience and mercy for granted. Thank you that you didn't strike us each dead after any one of our individual sins. That was well within your right to do. Thank you for that. Thank you for your mercies and your grace, which are new every morning. 
Friend, if you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, he's drawing you to him. He wants you to be able to exchange your guilt and your sin for his mercy and pardon. He wants to be able to extend to you freedom and love. He wants to bring you into his family, into his kingdom, write you into his will, make you an heir to his fortune. It's as simple as ABC. Admit, believe, choose. Admit that you've sinned and that you've done wrong. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who lived a sinless life, died on the cross, and is a substitute for your sins and rose from the dead and is alive today. And see, choose him to be your ultimate leader. Choose him to be your Lord. That is where so many of the people in the Bible struggled. They had an intellectual agreement with who God was, but they would not accept him as their Lord. They wanted to be delivered from sin, but still live life their own way, and you can't have it both ways. You either have someone who is your Lord or a mascot that follows you around and does what you ask them to do. You pull them out when you want. You put them away when you want. Jesus is the Lord. And that's something we have to bring to him and confess to him. So if you want to make your life right with the Lord today and receive salvation, I want to lead you in a simple prayer. Dear Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner and I've done wrong. I believe in you. I believe you're God's son. You died on the cross. You rose from the dead. You're alive today. I believe God accepted your death as payment in full for my sin. I confess my sin to you and I receive your forgiveness. I welcome you into my life and I choose you to be my Lord. I step off the throne of my life and I invite you to sit in its place. Ask all these things in your name. Amen.